since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> I'm as tired as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Are you telling me you built a time machine? Somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Show, the voice of young adult cancer. My name is Matthew Zachary, and I am a 16-year young adult survivor of pediatric brain cancer. And my name is Kenny Kane, EVP of Mission and co-founder of Stupid Cancer, and we are your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. All right, it's not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer? Under 40 sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. And tonight's show is a special show dedicated to our friends at Cancer Treatment Centers of America. In our survivor spotlight, Todd Gillette, who's a young adult survivor of synovial cell carcinoma and was treated at Cancer Treatment Centers of America. And from CCCA, we have Dr. Shema Cosme, uh, Reed Raymond, who's a doctor of osteopathy, and Stephanie Paver, who's one of their clinical oncology dietitians. Uh, going to be a really great show coming up, and back to you, Kenny. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, online at stupidcancer.org, the largest young adult support community. Close. Close. <laughs> Kenny's hungover tonight. All right, so welcome aboard another fun and exciting romp to the hay on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show, where remission is not a cure and survivorship is all that matters. And a Stupid Cancer welcome to any and all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network and on iTunes as we broadcast live from the Chemo Deck. Our fabulous studio in recently dried up Lower Manhattan. Yeah, Lower Manhattan. All right, now our self-aggratiating applause. Recently and electrified. Yes, recently re-electrified. Correct. So we have some really special guests in the studio tonight. We got a full tonight. house, full house here in, with in no air conditioning because yes, it's it's a holiday it's a or thousand, something yes, that we're working on. Yes, the holiday is Veterans Day. We want to say thanks to all of our veterans out there for keeping us safe. Uh, from the evildoers, as our yes. 43rd president the, the, used to say. The nuclear evildoers. <laughs> exactly. Well, first and foremost, we have Allie Ward in studio up from Baltimore. Hello, Allie. Good evening. That's Good it? Yeah, that's all I have to say. Okay. She's shell-shocked for being in studio. <laughs> and I'd like to welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show for the second time, but the first time as an employee of Stupid Cancer, our latest hire, the marketing communication associate, Maureen Sweet. Oh, that's a nice applause. Yeah. Hey. How does it feel to be employee number four? 
It feels wonderful. Yes? I want to get a jersey with a four on it. Okay, okay. fantastic. I'm terrified. <laughs> <laughs> We've got Maddie Beckett in the studio, our fabulous intern, and Taman Kim. Welcome back. And joining us tonight, what we decided was, uh, after at least a part of ways, and she's doing some great stuff at Reuters, actually, uh, she's been sharing her uh, daily stock market things. It's cool to watch her kind of talk tech jargon. It's like, it's like Lisa YouTube. Yes, it is. Daily snips. Um, so we've decided, you know, in our search for the next great uh, co-host of the Stupid Cancer Show, we're going to, I'm going to date myself, we're going to Murphy Brown this thing. And if those of you out there are old enough to remember Murphy Brown, uh, every episode she had a different secretary. It was a running gag across all the seasons that every single show had a different secretary. And... Um, we're just going to be opening up our doors to different co-hosts and seeing what works and what sticks. So I'd like to welcome back to the Stupid Cancer Show, because she was a guest a couple of weeks ago, Annie Goodman. Hi, everybody. Hello, Annie. Welcome back. Thank you. And I got Thanks your name correct. Me. You did get my name correct. Once I get it right the first time, it takes about a week. Okay. Yeah, and then I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Annie is a less than one year survivor of breast cancer. Yep. And your cancer anniversary is this February. Yep, February 29th. Wow. But I had to figure out a day. If I, want. I guess I'll do February 28th. I was diagnosed on Leap Day. So I'll push it up a day. Leap day. Yeah. Wow. That's awkward. Yeah. So okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna push up my anniversary to February 20th. Does that like make your survivorship in dog years? I, I guess so, <laughs> technically. <laughs> but yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna bump myself up a day. Well, we have to talk about the storm because we've been off the air for two weeks. We were shut down. Most of New York City, if not all of New York City, was pretty much shut down. Um, how did you guys fare, Allie? You were in Hawaii, so you can go, you know, huh. somewhere else well, right I now. Why the threat of a tsunami? That doesn't count. I mean, I you had, the, you had the threat of a massage on a beach. Well, I did have a massage on a beach. Yeah. <laughs> the threat was executed. Right, exactly. But I was at the airport trying to race away from the uh, storm and get on a text that says there's a tsunami warning in Hawaii. I'm going, oh crap, I can't leave. Yeah, but if storm. you climb up high enough on the volcano before it erupts on you, you'll avoid the flood, right? Exactly. See? I- it's a safe place to be. I was in much better place than you guys were. I yes. will admit that. And Maureen, you live in Astoria, right? I live in Astoria, beautiful, the, the, the part of Queens that did not get hit. So mm. I lost internet for like half a day, had a couple bottles of wine, and that oh. was perfect. So, <laughs> you, yeah. you belong on a, on a white wine tumbler. <laughs> <laughs> Annie, what about you? What's the story? I, so I was lucky. I live in the Upper East Side, so I fared okay. I, one thing that was not okay is I'm a patient at NYU, and a they lot they shut down, right? Oh, they did shut down. Um, as that was around uh, 34th Street is where the Clinical Cancer Center is, and that is where I received radiation treatment. So I got pushed back a week. Uh, they were unable to take me. Uh, they had no power. They didn't have a functioning website. All of my doctors for my treatment whether it be my oncologist, my radiation oncologist, my surgeons, everybody was in the blacked-out area. So that was fun, not being able to reach anybody for a week and not be able to receive treatment or find out when I was going to have treatment again. But right. it only it turned out to just be a week, so it wasn't okay. too bad. I just remember the footage of the, like, 200 ambulances yeah. came to NYU from across the country. Yeah, ambulances came as far as Denver. They just drove over, over nonstop straight, like a cannibal run to New York. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that's pretty amazing, um, so one thing that's actually really sad about the hospital is they lost all their research mice. Yes, they did. Um, so it did set them back a few years, but I did read a story, and I talked to my uh, one of my doctors about it, of all of the um, research tissue samples that right. were frozen, and they actually have my breast stored somewhere in a freezer. So I was asking them, I was like, Where'd my boob go? Is right. it okay? Yeah. And they said it was okay that the doctors were running up and down flights of stairs with dry ice to save oh all God. the research. And it made me, 
Made me a little proud of my doctor. Wait, how, how did the mice die? They, they drowned. They drowned. Oh, they they, they weren't were on a high floor? I, they were in the basement? I think so. I'm not exactly sure what floor they were on, but I know the mice drowned. Oh, man. The threat to the tissue samples was because they lost, the generators broke down. And well, I heard they had like eight backup generators all failed. Yeah, because they were in the basement. Yes. Yep, yeah. So Long place to keep backup generators. I know. Right. So hopefully they'll learn from their mistakes. But I was very proud of my doctors that they are that you know committed that they would run up and down flights of stairs with dry ice That's to amazing. save body parts and my boob. I'm glad Kenny, it's okay. You lost internet for what? Six hours? I so I live on the south shore of Long Island, probably about a mile and a half from the water, and I think I was uh, three quarters of a mile safe from any sort of structural damage. Right. The water just rose to an unprecedented level of this generation. I'm sure it's happened in the past. Yeah, like Noah. Uh, yeah, I mean, my my, li- <laughs> my lights flicker in general in my house. Right. So it's it was pretty it was pretty, you know, safe throughout the storm. Right. Uh, just worried about some glass breaking, which it didn't. Uh, my neighbor's internet that I I, I nick, as they would say, <laughs> uh, did go down. So we're lucky. We're we're happy to have his open network back. Right. Uh, I did have an interesting story where I came in on Saturday. The day before the New York City Marathon. To you run. walked up eight flights of stairs to get here. Correct. I took, like, the one train that was going to and from Long Island. I walked up eight flights of stairs in the dark with one of the the uh, security guards to retrieve the jerseys and stickers and stuff for the, the cheering section. Went to the expo at the Javits Center. Everybody picked up their bibs. Ann Kramer was here, Melinda Hood, Scott Slater. Everybody was going to pick up their stuff, only to find out, like, three hours later that it was canceled. Yes, and the only explanation I can think of is, like, they either wanted to empty the Javits Center and sell all the merch or that, you know, it was really just a last-minute decision. Right. So it's just such a, a strange coincidence that I posted on Facebook and I got flack because I think I posted, like, you know, wow, New York City Marathon canceled. And everybody's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, well, if you would have seen what right. I saw hours earlier, you would have understood. Yeah. So. Meanwhile, I got the... Uh the, the, I got to you move got back the, with my... Yeah, you got the shit end of this. <laughs> <laughs> we, we actually evacuated, my wife and my kids, and I, we evacuated on Sunday morning before the storm on Monday night. And we just took the kids and went to my in-law's house. And then we actually, for like, we were there for 12 days. But, but in that time, my in-laws and my parents, who live five miles apart, kept losing power and getting power. So we were like nomading ourselves back and forth from in-law to parents to see whoever had power. Because the kids need, like, you know, they need television or they need iPods to be charged or iPad. They need some kind of, you know, we live in an age where reading books just doesn't cut it anymore. They some sort of entertainment to keep you and them sane. Yes, exactly. More them than me. But when they are sane by proxy, we are sane. But, you know, I I put this on Facebook and special props to my parents and my in-laws for housing us. But I'm on the board of directors of my condo, so I had to go back on Tuesday morning. On Tuesday morning, it was like driving through I Had Legend, I Am Legend, the movie, uh, with all the cars in Brighton. I live in Coney Island, Brighton Beach, uh, literally a block from the boardwalk, which is partially gone. And it, the water surged up five feet inland at least a quarter mile. And there's insane damage. The beach moved up to, like, Avenue Z, you know, like mm-hmm. the sand as far as, like, a quarter mile inland. And, of course, our condo is right there, and, and our basement was flooded with 10 feet of water, and there were cars down there. Not our cars, other people's cars, stupid people's cars. We should have moved them. And uh, fortunately, the building got power back. Literally, this is kind of like a movie moment. Like, within the hour, we're, we're predicting that this actually happened. Within the hour that the water level dropped just enough to no longer be covering the Con Ed stuff in the basement, the power came back on. 
Otherwise, if the power came back on while it was submerged, the building would have exploded. Yeah. Yeah, something bad would have happened. So when the power came back on, my board called and was like, the power's on. I was like, how is that possible mm-hmm. if the basement is flooded? But we went down there later on and we saw that the line was nice. like, like six inches it's below the con itself. It's a good thing you weren't swimming down there. Right. <laughs> it took us um, almost almost 20 hours to pump out the garage with 1.1 million gallons of water in it. It's, wow. big, it's a big building. And we're getting it clean now. We have two insurance contracts. I was going to say, the filth of Coney Island, like, just washed right in your apartment. Well, if you, yeah, I mean, in the hall, it smells like a sushi restaurant. It really just, <laughs> oh. I mean, not a, it just smells like salt water, you know, yeah. like salt water and fish. Like, and the sand and the cars, the gasoline and the oil and the, the fluids from the pump room and the, the plumbing. Thing the thing with the thing with the thing. It's just, a, I mean, you know, I'm whining, but it's just one building the entire, I mean, Breezy Point and, Sea breeze and I mean everything just was gone. I'm sure they learned a lot of lessons. Well, you, now, you know what I couldn't help but think in New York. What City, couldn't you help but think in New York City? We have the letter ratings on the restaurants. Right. So A, if you're top notch. B, if you're you know grimy, but the food's good, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you know, C, C, if they cook you know eggs on the floor, or whatever. How many of those ratings are now invalid because water has I was, gotten in? I was wondering that myself, and I actually was a little bit skeptical about going to restaurants yeah. because. Okay, if you lost power, do I really want to eat there? Exactly. And also wondering when they got their last delivery. Yeah, like it kind of like creeped milk, me out a little. The milks, the cheeses, the meats. Yeah. You know, and it, I went to the restaurant around the block when I was here. Uh, I guess when the power came back on, I came in to to fill some of our store orders and and just take care of a little business. And I went around the corner to get dinner, and I'm like, you know, how'd you guys fare? And they're like, well, we got some water in the back. And I'm thinking to myself. Ugh. Water yeah. in the bag, what does that mean? It means the water probably touched the kitchen. And yes. The, where everything's made. and yuck. Right. Well, I mean, all things said and done, we're healthy, we're happy. Mm-hmm. I know some people that are still without power, but, you know, the, the pitching in, the, the the resoluteness of this community, it's amazing. They've raised like $100 million already to help boost what FEMA's already giving people. So, anyway, with that said, let's get to our first guest. Let's kick off the show, and uh, we'll... we'll all right, so our first guest is Todd Gillette, a father of two who owns an insurance agency in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He is very active as an advocate to newly diagnosed patients. He was treated at Cancer Treatment Centers of America, and he'd been given the bird to cancer for five years now. I met this gentleman at the, um, uh, the Stand Up to Cancer uh, event in September. He's a great guy. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Todd Gillette. Todd. Hello, Matthew. How you doing? Hi, guys. What's going on, buddy? Oh, I was just listening to you guys' story in New York. Uh, we've the rest of the world's been uh, keeping a close eye on, on you. Um, rough deal up there. I'm glad uh, I'm glad you guys are doing well. Yeah, we are. Can I? I was wondering, are you uh, on a speakerphone, perhaps, or on a Bluetooth device? No, I'm in my office that has. Let me see if I can open this door. I'm just in an office that has wood floors and no. Nothing on the walls. We're just trying it's to pump bad. up your volume a little bit. It's a little difficult to hear you, but it's good to have you on the phone. Okay, is that better? A little better. All right, well, I'll try to speak loud so you guys can hear me. All right, we'll clean it up in post. Okay. <laughs> so I had a pleasure of meeting you at the Stand Up to Cancer uh, event in uh, L.A. in September. And... Um, you know, we are been we've been working with uh, Cancer Treatment Centers of America for uh, a while now. 
So I, I just love you to tell your story, how you got diagnosed, how you found your way to CTCA. You know, where about young adults? You were a young adult. Uh, tell us your story. Sure. I was uh, 35 years old, and I had a big knot in my knee, and I was limping around for a long time. I, uh, it was misdiagnosed. They thought it was bursitis because I had an old football injury. And I finally went and saw some the last doctor before I was just going to give up trying to figure out what it was, and he said, I think you may have a tumor. So I, he introduced me to a orthopedic oncologist in Oklahoma City. I went down to see her. She said, yep, you've got a tumor, but it's probably just a fatty tumor. We'll get it out of you, and you can move on. When I went back to see her on January 2nd, 2007, she said, um, it's not what we thought. You have malignant cancer called synovial cell sarcoma, and synovial is the joint tissue, and it's stage four of sizing. It didn't metastasize, but it was an enormous tumor. And you guys know that feeling. It just knocks the breath out of you, and you say, well, what's this mean? Am I going to die? Do I have three weeks or three months? And she said, well, we don't know. Let's go across the hall and take an X-ray. So pretty scary stuff. Um, Luckily, they didn't see anything in the chest, and after I let that news sink in for a couple days, I, that's when I flipped the switch and decided to hit this thing from all angles. And before I, when I was setting up appointments to go visit oncologists locally in Tulsa, and I looked in Houston and Cancer Treatment Centers of America, I actually went to see a psychologist because I wanted to get my head wrapped around this so I could be mentally strong. And... I saw a naturopath and a nutritionist. So when I walked into Cancer Treatment Centers of America, they said, hey, you're going to go visit your radiation oncologist and your medical oncologist, but while you're here, we have a mind-body program, and we also have a naturopath and nutritionist you can speak with. So I was like, these guys are on the same page as I'm where I am. So that's how I, that's where I started with CTCA. Um, so, I mean, go ahead. And you were, again, you were um, married or you were single? Well, I was, I went through a divorce about 10 years ago. So when I was diagnosed, I was just remarried, like six months. So that was kind of rough on that. And my kids at the time were, I believe, nine and seven years old. So and we were getting, we were trying to have children at the time, so getting ready to go through high-dose chemotherapy for five and a half months. We actually did the whole fertility clinic, and I went to the um, to free sperm. By the way, if you have to go to a fertility clinic, at least in the one I went, you might want to bring your own material. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're into 80s uh, Playboys. But, you know, that was like Vanna White, right? Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's that's really amazing, though. That you know, we we talk about success stories and progress. You know, maybe even as long as five years ago, you may not have even been told about fertility rights, and you may not even have have had access to care that was age appropriate. Um, were you, uh, you know, what, what kind of resources did you find, or, or did you find resources that were sort of unique to, you know, your being a young parent of of children? Well. Uh, as far as as far as work went, I own my own business, and that was a 
that was my first hurdle. How am I, how am I going to spend all this time fighting cancer when I've got when I'm coaching my son's basketball team and trying to run a small business? And to make matters worse, that when I got diagnosed, my secretary at the time, and she was only with me for three or four months, she quit because she didn't think she could handle her boss going through cancer, which that was one bad story, but there's a lot of wonderful people that did great things for me. So I had to staff up, and uh, and I tell you what, a, a really cool thing happened at that point. I was walking in. Actually, I just finished my first cycle, and I was sitting on my laptop doing work and getting ready to call my assistant coach, just trying to do 100 things at once, and a nurse grabbed me. She said, hey, Todd, you've got to focus on beating cancer. This is your number one focus. Everything else is going to be there when you get back. And that right there changed my whole view of how I'm going to deal with this uh, treatment phase of the cancer fight. One of the so hardest that, parts. I'm oh, sorry, Demina, jump on no, you. No, go ahead. One of the hardest parts. I, you know, I just finished chemotherapy six weeks ago, and I uh, just started my third week of radiation today. And one of the hardest parts I dealt with that I know that you're really focused on is stress. And you, you know, seeked out help through a psychologist. Did you do mostly, you know, couples counseling, or did you do group counseling? You know, medication. Did you do one on one? Like, what did you find, you know, the most helpful? as far as, you know, the mental aspect of it, um, of getting through just being, you know, 35 years old, thinking you're perfectly healthy and having to deal with it mentally and emotionally. Sure. Uh, most of mine was one-on-one directly with the, with the therapist. And what I did was take my most, the most stressful things I had in my personal life, and she gave me tools on how to deal with that. And I went, like I had a bad deal with my ex wife and I went and said hey we're not fighting anymore over these little things and everything's a little thing once you're dealing with life and death uh, so she helped me through that part and then we I learned how to meditate and you're talking to a guy that hasn't sat still for five minutes <laughs> whole life so it uh, and you know what that meditating is not easy my first session of meditating lasted about five minutes but when I was in the hospital, see, my, my chemo infusion was for five days. Mm-hmm. I'd go in Monday and not get hooked, unhooked in, until Saturday. So I would go three or four hours and meditate and just imagine that chemo killing san- cancer cells. And that was very, very helpful for me. Uh, other than that, that, we did talk. We did have a little couples therapy with my wife. She was very, very supportive and as far as the kids go, they took it better than anybody. Um, I just told them, I said, hey, guys, I, I have a disease, and I have to take some medic- medication. It's going to make me look a little funny. I'm going to lose all my hair, and my eyebrows will even be gone in a couple months. And they said, okay, Dad, what else can we do for you? And they were they were great. So it was a really good support. And sometimes kids can make you feel good. They just, you know, remind you about what's important in life, and they're happy, and they're always happy to see you and give you a hug when you need it. And kids are helpful, too. I don't have any children myself, but, you know, it was always nice to hear from my nieces and my nephew, and my nieces made me cards. and Antitherapy. Yeah. They wore my wigs, and they thought it was funny, and they would rub my bald head. And, <laughs> you know, oh, it yeah. can help you out, too. We had a fun time when I 
after my first uh, cycle, when you start losing your hair and you can just pull it and it comes right out, we didn't rush to the bar, but we walked around and uh, had a little fun with it with my kids pulling my hair out in front of strangers. And it, it got a couple laughs, and we had a good time, but then it started looking a little scary, so we went ahead and shaved the rest of it off. They had a... They were wonderful throughout the entire. Todd, I think we're losing a connection with you, but we're actually out of time. Um, I don't know whether it's the internet or whether there's some issues here in New York City with the phones, but I I, I really want to thank you for calling into the show. Uh, congratulations on five years. Congrats. Thanks for sharing your story thank with you. us, and uh, we look forward to seeing you hopefully in Las Vegas next year. Okay, thank you so much for having me, guys. Sorry about the connection. Okay, Todd, take care. Okay, bye bye. Todd Gillette, everybody. All right, let's uh, let's get to the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Okay, what do we got here? Here at the Stupid Cancer Show, we promote and host hundreds of U.S. events each year, and don't want you missing out on any of them. Hey there, Kenny, what's going on? All right, everybody, head on over to events.stupidcancer.com your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something could be going on in your neck of the woods, and we don't want you missing out. And here's your event. What's coming up? We have a happy hour. Sorry, my computer locked up. We have a happy hour in New Jersey on November 28th. We have a New York City Memorial Sloan Kettering Young Adult Support Group on December 4th. And a couple more things coming up later on, but most importantly... What? what we have going on tomorrow. What's tomorrow? Well, are you going to read it, the next point? Yes. Tomorrow is the launch of registration for OMG 2013, the 6th Annual OMG Cancer Summit, April 25-28 through at the Palms Casino in Las Vegas, April 25th through 28th at the Palms Casino in Las Vegas. Four days of awesome at one of the largest patient gatherings of its kind in the world. Visit omg2013.org today or tomorrow and register and be one of the first hundred people to register and just feel good about yourself. Feel very good about yourself. Yes. Happy to announce the Stupid Cancer Store now has 20 awesome products for sale. Pens, pins, stickers, lanyards, and an awesome survivor journal and the most amazing graphic tees you've ever seen. And new racing jerseys, right? Right. We have cycling jerseys and now Team Stupid Cancer active tank tops. Nice. So check out stupidcancerstore.org. Be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer. Okay, and the Stupid Cancer Forums have over 3,000 members. This is your premier online community. To connect with survivors, patients, parents, and caregivers just like you, visit stupidcancerforums.com. Sign up with one click through Facebook, and that, that is, is your, your Stupid, Stupid Cancer, Cancer News. News. Okay, 7.26 on the Stupid Cancer Show. A warm, stupid cancer A show. A very warm, stupid cancer show. All right, we're going to introduce our three guests simultaneously, and you will pre-forgive me, guests, if I mispronounce your names. Um, but uh, this is exciting. Cancer Treatment Center of America is really an innovative group uh, of, of clinics and treatment centers, just the way they treat their patients. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Uh, Shama Kazmi, um, who is the uh, board-certified hemonc, uh, an internal medicine physician uh, who is, um, let's see, I think he is part of, I'm going to mess up all my notes here, Philadelphia uh, CTCA, 
We're going to be speaking with uh, Reed Rahman, who's a doctor of osteopathy, medical director of pain management at CTCA in the Midwestern Regional Center, and Stephanie Paper, who is a clinical oncology dietitian uh, for CTCA in the uh, Arizona Medical Center. So please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show simultaneously, Dr. Reed Raymond, uh, Shama Kazmi, and Stephanie Paver. Hello, everybody. Hi. Hello. 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 So welcome to the show. It's really great to have you guys. We are obviously huge fans of what you guys do, and we know the uh, the feeling is mutual. Um, I'm thrilled to be able to do a dedicated broadcast to you guys. We're going to spend the next 30 minutes just deconstructing CTCA, your your science, your procedures, your the way you treat patients. I was really just made totally in awe of your best practices and standards of care when I came to visit one of the clinics um, in Tulsa. And it just let let's just start with uh, with and again, forgive me if I'm pronouncing your names wrong, but Dr. Cosme, is that correct? Yes, Dr. Cosme. Yep, you got it. Oh, I'm I'm just in awe of of everything you guys do. So talk to us about you know how did you get involved in in oncology, what your study, and how did you find yourself at CTCA? Well, I trained at the University of Medicine and Dentistry in New Jersey at the Cancer Institute of New Jersey. And and as a lot of doctors like to do, they either have a choice of academic medicine or private um, private uh, you know practice uh, private cancer treatment. And I chose the route of private cancer treatment, uh, assuming that I'd have more autonomy in terms of how I would like to practice. I was idealistic in the sense that, you know, I really wanted the patients to get the true benefit of everything we have learned and was unable to provide them that during the academic experience. And unfortunately, the real world didn't give me that experience. When I was out in community, the communication between physicians was disjointed, um, I didn't have the ability to speak with the radiation oncologist or the surgeon or even the radiologist um, right away about a patient's case. I didn't have the ability to speak with a nutritionist if I saw a patient who lost 20 pounds. I didn't have any sort of communication with their other providers that was uh, real-time sensitive. And I felt lost. And I was incredibly lucky to have uh, Cancer Treatment Centers of America actually find me and when I visited their Philadelphia Center, I was blown away, as you were when you visited Tulsa, because you get a sense that everyone feels whole there. They feel appreciated. They are extremely well taken care of in every way possible. They have cutting-edge science. But at the core of their whole um, science is, is their true love and caring for the patient, everything that the patient needs from looking at it from the eyes of the patient is what makes it amazing. Right, and and that sort of ties into this this patient empowered care model that you have, which is basically, I mean, I was I was it was explained to me initially as kind of an IEP where the patient comes in and they're assigned these these specific you know vertical providers. It's spiritual, it's nutritional, and and that sort of ties into why the three of you are on the show because you represent sort of the diversity in the patient model. Let's kick it over to Dr. Raman, uh, osteopath. A lot of people don't know what an osteopath is. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Uh, hi, Matt. Um, uh, osteopathic physician um, uh, looks at the patient kind of in a, hol- a holistic sense. Uh, you're not just looking at a biological cause for a problem, but you're looking at the mental connections, emotional connections, maybe a spiritual connection. And uh, that's kind of what drew me here to CTCA because um, every patient is unique and it's not black and white. Uh, there's usually a lot of factors involved with their care. 
and uh, that's what I love about CCCA. Uh, we have comprehensive cancer care all under one roof, and it all starts with the, the, the PEC team that you mentioned, the patient-empowered care team, and that involves uh, uh, the patient having a, a, a dedicated medical oncologist, a clinic nurse, a registered dietitian, a naturopath, uh, a nurse manager, and uh, we're all trying to do the same thing, which is help the patient um, by looking at it from their perspective. And I think we do a great job at it. And also integrating into that that relationship with the patients is uh, nutrition and diet. I, when I was there, I remember like uh, having uh, eating at the cafeteria, and the food was <laughs> um, it was like going to Google campus. They, they have the most like it's like they were it was grown outdoors and brought right in. So. Obviously, that must sort of assist in in managing patient nutrition to have sort of an integrated wellness cuisine embedded in the institution. But Stephanie, uh, talk to us about you know your history as a dietitian, working in oncology, and, and the the experience of being at CTCA. Hi, Matt. Um, yeah, so the, what drew me to CTCA is, was the overall, the culture of the mother standard. And what that means is every patient is treated as and cared for as if he or she were your mother, brother, sister, or father. And so that in and of itself speaks volumes of who we are and uh, what we do. And not only that, but it's, it's uh, the culture of, um, you know, walking through the halls and everybody is willing to to help you no matter who you are, if you've seen that person before. Um, so it's the overall culture that drew me to, to CTCA. Yeah. And certainly um, the nutritional component is a very a vital part of the patient-powered care team because what's been documented from the National Cancer Institute is that up to 40 to 80% of patients can become malnourished during their treatment. And even more astounding is that up to 40% of patients can pass from the effects of malnutrition and not necessarily the cancer. And so, Stephanie, uh, this is Annie. With uh, nutrition, do you are all the patients referred to you, or do they come as a needed basis, or are they just kind of, you know, before they start chemotherapy, they get like a rundown, this is how you're going to feel, this is what you should do? Every time the patient comes to see the doctor, they see the whole team. So I'm constantly assessing patients' nutritional status every visit that they have, and if they do have any of the anticipated side effects from the chemotherapy or radiation or whatever the treatment modality is, we are addressing that to help them prevent malnutrition, to keep the immune system strong, and most importantly, to prevent treatment interruptions that can happen if a patient becomes malnourished. Wow, it's pretty impressive. I, uh, you know, just finished chemotherapy six weeks ago, so this is all, you know... It's all on my radar. It's all stuff I've gone, you know, very recently gone through. And I can, uh, you know, reading up on your bio about, you know, everyone's diet changes. I remember my favorite foods even now are sometimes still hard to eat. But, yeah, yes. one of the things my doctor told me was don't eat your favorite foods because you will hate them forever. Right, <laughs> exactly. Yep. Well, it's the opposite of my cancer diet. When I was diagnosed, I actually lost 110 pounds in wow. three months. And uh, to and then I was hyperthyroid to be to add to that mess, and wow. I went back to the doctors all like wan and and with no muscle mass, and they basically said eat three pints of vanilla Häagen-Dazs a day, and oh goodness, <laughs> yeah, and that was my nutritional plan. Oh my, summer of '96. Yeah, mine was pretty similar. They told me that they were mad I lost like six pounds in a week, and I don't weigh a ton to begin with, so. They, uh, you know, pulled me aside and said, please eat whatever you want and eat a lot of it, and please stop losing weight. Uh-huh. 
And in, and in some cases, you know, that can be the recommendation. But first and foremost, we're always recommending um, a cancer-fighting kind of diet. So plant-based foods, lots of fruits and vegetables, uh, limiting uh, red meats, lean protein. Um, and we work with our culinary team um, to actually make sure that the all the food in the in the cafeteria is nutritional and it does align with our message of a plant-based diet. Um, and one thing that I think really sets us apart is that um, we we are very specialized in um, when we're working with patients. It's very individualized. It's not just a matter of like you said, go home and eat three pints. It's what are the foods that you can to- you know what are the foods you can tolerate? What are the foods you like? And how can we and what can we do to enhance the calories while still helping to get in some of those antioxidants and cancer-fighting foods, if possible? Um, and and similarly, we I can work with the medical oncologist and say this person's really um, they need help with their appetite. What do you think about an appetite stimulant as a prescription drug? And then I would have that conversation with the doctor. So let's, let's I think I think to Stephanie's point, this is Dr. Cosme again. I yeah, just want to emphasize that. Um, the most important thing here is to recognize that patients shouldn't lose 20, 30, or 100 pounds in, in his case to be recognized as someone who needs a nutritionist. The, the vital and the pivotal part of patient-empowered care is that before they even begin treatment, I think their nutrition needs to be looked at and throughout the treatment so there isn't weight loss that's appreciable and their diet can be changed and maximized to their benefit. And I think to that effect, the patient-empowered care model also brings in a naturopathic physician. We don't have one on the panel today, but these uh, these physicians who are trained in, the, in their own medical school are really important in terms of supplements. Every patient that I know takes supplements, whether or not I know anything about these supplements, whether or not I even approve them. I know every patient takes supplements. Whether they know that they're safe or not, they take them <laughs> based on their belief system. And it's very important to have somebody on your team to say, hey, you know, check these out. Are these what they should be taking or should they be taking something else or are these dangerous? And so this way I get to do my job while I have the naturopathic physician, the nutritionist, the care managers, the pain medicine physician do their jobs, and we can all work together as a team and talk to each other constantly so the patient really feels like their story is being really, really addressed in, in every angle. Well, that then opens up the conversation back to Dr. Robin about uh, pain management. You know, how how does obviously it's individualized, and when you're dealing with an unregulated universe of naturopathic and holistic medicines uh, that can be complementary, but we don't really have data about some of them. How do you manage, you know, uh, you know, patient will and interest versus best practices? It all starts with uh, just the basics of medicine, which is a thorough history and a physical. And uh, in the history, what I'm looking for uh, partly is their pain history, their experience with uh, being in pain. Some people have had many surgeries. They're familiar with pain. Some people have uh, had broken bones. They're familiar with pain. Some people have really never had pain in their life, maybe um, uh, um, a paper cut, and that's about it as far as having severe pain. So part of it is to understand exactly what the physical pain is, and then the extension beyond that is to do a a history of any emotional pain, things that are causing anxiety, depression, anger about their situation. They can have social suffering if they're all, all alone, if uh, they're losing their job, if there's family stressors. 
There can also be spiritual suffering. Maybe they have faith. Maybe they lost their faith. They don't know what to do. So a lot of what I do is gather a thorough history, uh, examine the patient, um, and based on the history and physical and the current uh, studies we have, um, uh, imaging uh, blood tests, I can give them an idea of what I think the problem is. And uh, if it's beyond uh, me, I'm always going to refer to uh, my friends, um, um, the nutritionists, the naturopaths, physical therapy, uh, the chiropractors, uh, osteopathic manipulative medicine if needed, um, and as well as the oncologists here, um, medical, uh, surgical radiation. So, what the, what, for the pain manager, what are the different types of treatments that you offer patients? I saw, you know, you guys do acupuncture. Do you also do massage? Uh, yep. You know, I as a patient, I did probably like 17 rounds of either Nulasa or Nupagen. So yeah. that is, you know, to help your white blood cells and stimulate your bone marrow and cause some pretty bad bone pain. I, uh, you know, relied on heating pads and Tylenol, but then I discovered massage, and that really helped me out a lot. So I was just curious what, you know, what you guys do at your center and what you recommend for your patients there. I, I recommend what they're comfortable with. So I usually, uh, in the clinic, uh, explain to the patient there are many ways to manage pain in the human body. One of them can be main, uh, pain medication, which is uh, controlled drugs, the opiates or non-opiates. Uh, there could be um, physical therapy or massage, acupuncture. Uh, there are different ways to manage physical pain, and uh, it all depends on what the patient is comfortable with. Some patients are afraid of pain medications, um, some are afraid of addiction. Some of them feel pain is normal. Some of them feel they should suffer in silence. Uh, so a lot of what I do is um, try to educate them on what, uh, uh, um, how they should look at pain, and uh, I try to work with them to see what they're comfortable with, and then I encourage them to uh, take advantage of those options. There are other options for advanced pains that are uh, non-responsive to uh, basic interventions. That may be interventional pain procedures. Uh, it may mean surgery but it all depends on the patient, and it depends yeah. on what they want and what's most important to them. And if they can't make that decision alone, they may need the help of their family and close friends. And do you keep a close eye when you're especially putting patients on, like, opiates and, you know, Percocet that can make you feel a lot better? Can make you, I remember when I, the first time I ever took Percocet, I was in the hospital and I was kind of a lunatic <laughs> in, a, in a very funny, hilarious way. And, uh, you know, it is very addictive, and, you know, that was definitely a concern of mine and a concern of my doctors. Uh, you know, what do you guys, do you guys put patients on, you know, like a pill schedule? Do you give them, like, a limit on how many you'll give them? You know, it's such a concern in our country where people just, you know, pop these pills all the time, and it does help a tremendous amount, but at the same time, they are extremely addictive. So what do you guys, you know, as a... As a physician, what do you? How do you keep track to make sure that people, you know, don't cross that line? Uh, it, it depends. It, it starts from the first day, the patient-physician relationship, and uh, it's about explaining uh, the importance of uh, why we're using these medications. And what I explain to the patients in my clinic is, we are using these medications, whether they're the weaker or the stronger opiates, uh, to blunt pain in a certain part of the body, so you can live your life, so you can function. Now with uh, strong pain medications, the strong opiates, the common side effects are mental sedation, mental sluggishness, uh, nausea, vomiting, constipation, and the goal is not to keep you asleep in bed all day. The goal is to blunt the pain for you to take the pain medication as needed so you can live your life, go to work, go to school, take care of your home. Uh, on the other side, 
these medications can be addicting. But based on my relationship with the patient and my initial encounter, I have a very low threshold for that. I, I feel that addiction is not a concern in this patient. And based on my relationship in the future, as the weeks and months pass, um, if the pain medication isn't working the way I was hoping it would, we can try something else, maybe a different pain medication, maybe a medication to offset that adverse effect of the opiate. So I'm going to work with the patient to try to get their pain under control. Sometimes we get it on the first time, sometimes on the second or third. But the bottom line is uh, I'm going to keep trying, and all of us are going to keep trying to help the patient. Again, I'm, I'm really just consistently blown away by the, the way you guys philosophically wrap yourselves around the patient's needs. One of the things that uh, I was I was told on my first visit uh, to the center was that there's a, a saying internally, which is, you know, uh, the doctor, the patient will see you now, and that the the seven-minute restrictions don't really apply. Um, I, I was made to understand that most of your patients are outpatient. Is that correct? Well, um, there, yes, most of the patients are outpatients, and the way CTC is organized is there is a CTCA location um, across different parts of the country, um, eastern, uh, southeastern, midwestern here north of Chicago, um, southwestern in Oklahoma, uh, southwestern in, in Phoenix, so based on the geographic location, the patient more likely may go to the um, closest CTCA facility. Right. And so majority of the patients are outpatients, and uh, so we take care of outpatient and, and inpatients. So we try to meet the needs if they're not local, uh, and we can do a lot uh, by speaking with them over the phone and uh, uh, sending them um, prescriptions or anything else through the mail if needed. So uh, that's more of a question for Stephanie then. Uh, you know, how do you ensure like compliance and adherence when it comes to nutrition if they're if they're outpatients? It's really about what the what the patient you know wants. Um, most of them are they they want the information to help themselves, and um, the more that I can do for them in terms of providing education, uh, making sure I'm writing things out for them so that they can take something home and look at it, reference it later, um, it's going to help them. A lot of times what I'll do is say, hey, can I email you, um, you know, whatever it is, say it's they need high potassium foods or they need, you know, some recipes for soft foods because they're having some chewing difficulties. I can shoot them an email, sum up what we talked about in their consult, and then provide them with whatever those, you know, nutrition tips are. Um, and I think that that helps the patients a lot because then they have something to reference and look back on. And I'll throw this question out to all three of you, but as far as, you know, programs you offer for young adults and patients who are, you know, in their 20s, 30s, early 40s, whether they be single, married, wherever they are in life, what kind of programs do you guys offer for, you know, support groups or counseling or whatever it may be just to, you know, help young adults kind of find each other and, uh, you know, get through this together and maybe, you know, do you have like a buddy program where you can meet someone who's a few years out or what do you guys offer for young adults? We do have a mind-body program that uh, is full-time therapists that help patients, not specifically young adults, but really all patients who come in with concerns. We do have a lot of patients in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. Uh, we have a patient ambassador program as well where patients who have been through the system help and seek out patients who are new, who can sort of um, figure out a way to understand how CTC operates and work through all of the uh, the care that they provide. 
because it is overwhelming. We offer a lot of choices to patients who are not sure exactly what they should sign up for, what they shouldn't. They only have limited time sometimes during their visits there. So there are a lot of um, people who help them out. We have patient relations teams that help out the patients and hook up the appropriate patients with an age-appropriate uh, different patients if need be. Uh, we don't have an organized group per se for young adults, but in fact one of my patients um, that I um, have has her own um, support group that she started for young adults specifically with cancer, focusing on things such as fertility, things such as you know um, sexuality, things that are very important for young adults uh, and maybe not so much for the really older adults. Um, you know, think most of these young adults may not have a spouse, may not have children, and may have moved out of the house and may not have parents, so they might not have the caregivers in the traditional sense of the term. So we really want to focus on things like their fertility. You know, they want to date. Um, they have metastatic breast cancer, and they want to go out on a date, and how do you broach such a subject? So our therapists are really in tune with a lot of these young patients and, and all of the variety of questions and concerns that they have. I was hoping uh, each of you could comment uh, briefly about your experience as a provider in the CTCA environment versus uh, past experience at other hospitals or, or clinic centers. Can we start with uh, Stephanie, perhaps? Yes. As a dietitian at CTCA, I feel um, very well respected. Um, I can have uh, clinical medical conversations with uh, the doctor, with the naturopath, with the nurse, and we definitely do take a collaborative effort. Um, at previous facilities that I've worked at, that's not always the case where maybe I'm just I'm regarded as just the dietitian, what does she know kind of a thing. And so um, it's it's definitely a much different feel here. And what well, what we do as dietitians, it is important and it is impacting patients their their whole journey, their quality of life, their um their outcomes in a lot of cases as well. So uh I feel that we do get that respect. Dr. Raman? Yeah, I'd like to say along the same lines, um, is that uh what's interesting about this place is um like it is innovative, but what we've been doing here with our uh, integrative model of care has been going on for the last twenty, twenty four years. And uh the way to look at it is this is there's there's two models of care. There's the conventional treatments that involve medical oncology, radiation oncology, surgical oncology, uh, maybe immunotherapy, diagnostic imaging. Then you have another component, uh, another component, the complementary therapies, which includes me, pain management, the naturopaths, nutrition, physical therapy, chiropractic medicine, spiritual support, mind-body medicine. And the thing is we combine those two uh, models of care to help empower the patients. We try to optimize their care that way. And what I love about my job is uh, I can call any of my colleagues on short notice. I can stop them in the hallway. We could discuss a patient. It's not an issue. We have all these services under one roof, and that's what makes us unique. And it's great to just have people around you that are open to suggestions. And whether you're a physician or a non-physician, we're all on the same team. So we should all treat each other professionally and respectfully. That's how I feel. And I think that's what we do here. And I'm, I feel very fortunate to uh, take care of the patient population that I do. And uh, Dr. Cosme? Um, I echo both of their statements 100%. What I would normally describe is it as in traditional medicine, it's either the choice between the traditional medicine 
or the quote-unquote alternative, which are all the complementary therapies we just described. I try not to think of it that way, and I think that's where the future of medicine is going. I think all of the different types of medicines and all of the treatment options are complementary and integrative instead of an alternate. It's not one or the other, and I think that when you combine everything together and figure out what the patients need most, patients ultimately do really, really well. When you communicate with each other, I can pick up the phone, as as Dr. Rahman said, and call anybody, call the surgeon, have them come over, take a look at a scan. I can talk to my nutritionist and say, hey, this patient lost 10 pounds in three weeks. This is not good. What should we do? I trust them completely. I trust my colleagues completely, and each one of my team members is my colleague. Not one of us makes a decision without the other. So I think that's the most important thing for the patient to know that all of us are talking to each other. All of us value each other. There's no conflict in what we decide. We come up with the decision-making in a way together, and I think that's ultimately what the patients want. They want what's best for them. They want to know that we're on their side, and we're going to do everything that we can to help them. You know, flipping from the other side of the equation, you know, uh, Kenny, fortunately, is not a cancer survivor, but, you know, we've been to our share of hospitals across the country to to exhibit or give speeches or, or discuss things on panels, and he had the privilege of going down to Noonan to the brand-new Atlanta uh, Center. And I wanted just him to, you know, for, as a non-survivor layperson, young adult, you know, your experience, Ken. Yeah, well, <clears throat> prior to stupid cancer, my experience was working as a pharmacy technician. And the last stage of that was working in a hospital. So I got a nice glimpse of, you know, two and a half years in the hospital environment and the community and the things you go through on a daily basis in terms of regulations and and, and making sure everything's clean and bright and sparkling and, and, you know, pretty for the patients. And going to Noonan, it was just it was a, an experience unlike any other hospital experience I've had. You know, of course, we've all been to the hospital for our share of, you know, whatever. Um, I've watched my dad get treatment in a university hospital and, you know, other friends in hospitals. And it, it's such a, a, a different experience to CTCA where it's not so much a, a unit that's, that's very much a fishbowl where you can walk around, you have patients' names on the door, and, you know, you can almost poke your head in and, and, and say hi to them. Especially a lot of the stuff when you walk in at CTCA Noonan, which is the one that I've been to, you don't see so much of the the hospital element. You have the the spa and the hair salon and the pharmacy and the gift shop. It, it, you feel like you're in a hotel more than a hospital. I'm wondering how that reflects on the employee, whether that's, you know, for the morale, I can imagine that it must be pretty high when you walk into this beautiful building on a daily basis. Do you guys want to talk about that, being an employee, and, and I guess how that translates to patient care? Yeah, it's definitely not a sterile environment. You typically picture a hospital, you know, with white walls and, and very sterile-looking countertops and Everyone's just sort of looking grim and, and, you know, um, and that's really not the case. Everyone is happy, cheery. In fact, you know, a lot of uh, people I know would be like, oh, cancer, that must be so depressing. And, in fact, it's just quite the opposite. We really have a lot of fun with our patients. They teach us how to live. You know, they teach us how to laugh. And when everybody cares about everybody and the environment is friendly and upbeat, there's plants everywhere, there's a little water fountains, it just makes a huge difference for them to know that they don't feel like a patient because their life isn't just about the cancer. The cancer is just a small part of it. That's right. something they want to fix. Right. I mean, you know, my dad was getting treated, and there is life outside of the hospital. 
and it's a delicate balance between pulling into this this place where you're like, oh, I'm here for chemo, versus some of the survivors and, and volunteers that were at the kickoff event, you know, it seemed like they were coming home to CTCA. That's and, the word I hear all the time. And, and the, passion like that they, the passion that they showed at the kickoff event where they couldn't tell you enough about the services and, and how great the staff was and, and you know, couldn't do enough for the people who were coming to visit. It, it was such a, an incredible experience. Typically, you know, you're in, you're out, and you reflect on the hospital when you receive your bill. You know, that, that's the reminder that you were there. These people have almost memories of, of staff members and doctors and the the level of care that never quits that they received. One thing... Sure, go ahead. I was just gonna. I was just gonna say the physical aspect definitely reflects the culture and and who we are. And um, as you were saying, Kenny, I mean it's definitely about the relationships that we build with our patients. And it's not just coming in for the cancer treatment and going home. Um, we we are with these people throughout their entire journey, and we're seeing them every single time they come in. And more importantly, they're creating friendships with other cancer patients that they meet when they're here. So. Um, it's all very much encompassing, and and I certainly think that um, the hotel feel or that uh, anti-hospital kind of feel, you know, that's not a mistake. That's who we are. That's we've done that on purpose. I can imagine it's very rewarding. Yeah, and the uh, this is Dr. Raman, and the patients I've met in my clinic from across the country, uh, from some of the experiences they've shared with me from other uh, physician visits, other uh, hospitals, aren't that positive aren't that bright, and I just feel that um, they come here to be treated um, better. Um, they have an intuition in them to, to get a second opinion, and, and they give us a chance, and, uh, you know, they, de they deserve the best, and they deserve to have a great experience. So um, I think we meet those needs, but we're going to keep working on it day by day. Yeah, one of the things that we were discussing, we were curious about, was, you know, how you guys feel about, uh, you know, environmental factors and toxins and, you know, the air that we breathe and the food that we eat. And, you know, uh, I guess I can start with Stephanie as, uh, you know, your response and how, uh, you know, CTCA, you know, what they advise and, you know, how you guys feel environmental factors dealing with cancer. From the nutritional aspect, we work de uh, definitely very closely with our culinary team. Um, the message that we send based on um, – our message from a food standpoint is eating a plant-based diet, getting your, you know, five to nine servings of fruits and vegetables, um, limiting red meat, lean proteins, getting your fish, you know, your servings of fish in there. And um, certainly the food that we serve reflects that message. One thing that we've done here at Western is we just grow ground on a 25-acre organic farm. And 90% um, of our produce is already certified organic wild caught no pesticides nor ho no hormones and the the farm with the farm that we've just broke ground on that's going to help us to reach uh closer to a 100% um organic food um and we are the first cancer center in the nation to have an organic farm of this size on site I wasn't going to mention it but one of the, my favorite parts of visiting Noonan was the different food stations you had set up outside the event. I don't know if any of you were there, but you can imagine meeting the chefs in the kitchen and, and the, the level of effort and and, and just the, the the finishing touches on, on the food 
it, it just it, it's all in line with with the whole the whole display of the hospital. Sounds pretty awesome to me. When I was in the hospital, I got rolls and pats of butter and pudding <laughs> and sorbet and I don't know yucky looking stuff that I fed to my dad and I just kind of ate the rolls and lived on yeah. that for three days in the hospital. Chef Chef makes um, everything from scratch, so you know there isn't really any canned item or processed item in the kitchen. Um, even in terms of our vegetable broth, I mean that's all made from. Uh, actual vegetable, um, you know, like the scraps of the vegetable. So everything here is made from scratch. It beats uh, Jamaican meat patty day at uh, <laughs> one of the hospitals here in New York. Barbecue. Got us within those things. Well, we're just about out of time. I really wanted to, you know, thank you guys for coming on. But, uh, you know, in, in terms of just, you know, wrapping everything up and coming full circle, this idea of focusing on the patient's needs um and and you know working the system around that philosophy you know coupled with the unique way in which you guys handle you know um I- insurance issues and welcome and just managing the the the, the flow of people into and out of the, the centers what would be your thoughts um on the viability of exporting this beyond the CTCA model just in philosophy alone or are there really just too many barriers in the system for this to be uh, just a fluidic opportunity, I guess we'll start with uh, with uh, with uh, Dr. Cosme. Um, I think the way CTCA offers uh, patients care is the way it ought to be everywhere. To be honest, in, in terms of the philosophy. Now, in terms of barriers, well, you know, when when Mr. Stevenson founded CTCA, um, barriers is what kept the other hospital from doing this. So. I don't necessarily believe that barriers should prevent physicians and other care providers to start, at least from at least the philosophy that the patient is the center of their care, not the doctor, the patient. I think once that philosophy and that mindset turns around, I think anything's possible, and this model of care can most certainly become universal as it should be. Dr. Raman, your thoughts? I hope in the future it can become universal, but I think the reality is uh, what we're doing is innovative. It's a cutting edge, and uh, maybe we can be a model for other uh, medical centers uh, in the present and future uh, to um, mimic. But like I said, because we have all these resources under one roof, it's challenging. And uh, part of it is also getting a group of individuals that are kind of like-minded on uh, what, what the mother standard of care is, and that is the way you treat a patient as if it's your own mother. So using that as the benchmark, hopefully you have uh, a group of people with that uh, uh, state of mind. And, and Stephanie, I mean, obviously there are a lot of, you know, the, the idea of nutritional wellness is a trend in a lot of cancer centers around the country now. This integrative approach, it doesn't preclude the barriers of the system, but I, I can't think of any center that, you know, has a farm you know, <laughs> attached to it where the tomato you pick five minutes ago is in the sauce right. you're eating five minutes right. later. But but are, are we at least in a better place than we used to be from that philosophy? 
Yes, um, I think it's evident with patients traveling on average 500 miles each way to -hmm. come to our facility for the integrative model for everything that we have to offer. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've met patients and they said, I've come here for the nutritional component or, you know, there's something specifically they're seeking out. Um, and and I, I do think that more and more people are learning about who we are, what we do, what we do, and they're starting to seek out this whole person's um, integrative care. Well, I think that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, that's all. Okay. Well, I mean, I, we're we're out of time. We want to wrap, but I I really am glad that we had a chance to sort of bring everything full circle and talk about how the philosophy really makes a huge difference. The testimonials coming out of your centers are are unsurpassed the way people feel about the experience and and to have happy employees is really something very unique and interesting. <laughs> so, you know, happy employees make happy patients, make happy environments. So, I, I can't thank you guys enough for making the time to come on the show and I wish you all the best. I I hopefully will see you soon. And Kenny uh may be actually headed to your cancer centers on our road trip uh next uh spring. So, hopefully he'll get to meet you guys in person. It'd be great. That'd be awesome. Wonderful. So thank you. Coming on the show, Dr. Reed Rahman, uh, Shane McCosme, uh, sorry about that, and Stephanie Paper from Cancer Treatment Center of America. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Well. Really would be interesting to see that philosophy exported. What do you think? Alice? I, Annie? Yep. I said Alice on purpose. Okay. Uh, I think it sounds really good. And one of the uh, interesting points is how, what a focus they put on nutrition um, especially now as I start moving into my survival life rather than as a patient, uh, one of the main things my doctor told me was, you know, controlling my diet. And um, it, I haven't personally seen a nutritionist yet. It hasn't really been something that has been as accessible to me as it sounds like it is at this, you know, at this treatment center. It's just really great to make it so easy because for some people, especially, you know, young adults, your life is, you know, eating something fast or, you know, I live alone, so my oven gets used like once a year. Right. So it's great to have, you know, doctors and nutritionists and having just, you know, guidelines and help and a chef would be nice too. Right. Well, you know, my wife is on a, a, a Jenny Craig and mm-hmm. it's actually the food's really, really good. It's kind of like you would wonder if like they're sending patients home to their na- to their native areas, and there is no whole foods. And what could they do to right. maintain some level of equivalency on what the nutrition they're getting there? Right. And you know, not you, not eat Swanson dinner. Yes, yeah. no 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 sandwiches. Or a smart one. Yeah. Right. Smart, I was right. told no more of the lean cuisines. That was a sad day. Really? <laughs> I haven't had one since February. What? Why the nitrates or something? Yeah, just because there's so much sodium in them, right. and there's yeah. nothing fresh and. But they're so delicious. Yes, they are. I do miss them. I miss my my three pints of Hagen Dazs a day because I was actually still losing weight eating them. Mm-hmm. So, not really the and best now, nutritional plan for oncology patients. Yeah. Gaining weight eating three <laughs> pints of Hagen Dazs. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, before we wrap, I just want to talk with. We want to talk about the uh, this brand new organization. Well, not really brand new, but it's been rebranded, so it's technically brand new. Uh, well, six, it isn't new. Well, it's new in in, in like. In terms of business, yes. But six years ago, uh, Livestrong corralled maybe forty smaller startup nonprofits in the young adult cancer space and a couple of cancer centers to uh, become, which was the Livestrong Young Adult uh, Alliance. 
and six years later, they have disbanded to reimagine themselves and reorganize as an independent nonprofit called Critical Mass. And Kenny and I were just in Atlanta for the kickoff inaugural meeting of Critical Mass. And I think they're going to do things right. What do you think? I think so as well. It was a great event. I, I've got a kick out of the fact that we were like two ships passing in the night. I think we spent about 12 hours there together. You mean um, my, my seven-hour delayed flight? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> right. your, your wonderful travel curse. Uh, the, the the kickoff of the event was great. Uh, a lot of new faces in it. I think it's not that the old system was uninviting, but I think you had to be, there were certain criteria to be a member. Right. Whereas a lot of survivors and individuals and a lot of really, really early startup nonprofits and, and people who have maybe have nonprofit status pending were excited to go. Right. Uh, thinking that this was similar to like an OMG event where it was a lot of advocacy and a lot of stuff. And I think they were happily uh, or pleasantly surprised to find that there was a lot of medical and researchers and the, the flip side of the coin was present. So I, well, I, it's like the OMG Summit for like nonprofit Absolutely. leaders. Absolutely. You know, minus the go-go dancing in Vegas. Yes, the right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, we are at the close of our show. You like the show? Yeah, it was great. All right. It's good to have you as our you. first Murphy Brownite. Thank you. Testing the waters. Thanks for having me. Um, all right. So, Annie Goodman. Yeah. Because I remember these things. Every now and then my brain will misfire and then refire, which is great. Uh, I'm Maureen, was it good for you? I mean, yeah, it was great. Okay. Allie Ward? I like being in studio. You like being in studio? I do. Yeah? You want to come back? Maybe next time I'll speak more. Okay. We would hope so. <laughs> we would absolutely hope so. All right, well, with that, it is time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, Internet. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's tonight's show, our 244th broadcast. We hope you had much fun as we did poking a stick at stupid cancer. All right, we'd like to thank all of our in-studio guests, Alice. Thank you. Yes, no, Andy Goodman. Allie Ward, Taman Kim, Matt Beckett, and our guests, Todd Gillette, Shama Kazmi, Reed Raman, and Stephanie Paver from Cancer Treatment Centers of America. Next week's show, Surviving Hollywood. We've got a great gaggle of guests from you uh, in the Survivor Spotlight. Woody Roseland, a comedian and motivational speaker. You know him, you love him. He's a young adult survivor of osteosarcoma. Returning champion, Dean Brown, who's facing ovarian cancer for the second time. She's the host and reporter of Sky Living and the entertainment director, manager at L.A. Bureau. And Brian Bishop, who's a young adult survivor of brainstem glioma, and he's a sidekick on the Adam Carolla Show. It's going to be a great show next week. Don't forget to tune in at uh, 7 p.m. Eastern. And if you've missed any of our past shows, download them all for free on iTunes at iTunes.stupidcancer.org or check out the archives anytime at stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Kenny Kane, myself, and the whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, have a great week, and we'll see you back here next Monday live at 7. Take care. Take it easy, guys.